it's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented by Prevenex, the supplement brand that I trust and have trusted for a long time. I love their Joint Health Plus, their multivitamins, and so many other products that they have. Believe me, you need to go check them out with supplement brands. As we all know, sometimes we don't know who we can trust, what we can trust, and what it can do for us. I tried them for three months before I allowed them to be an advertiser on this show because I wanted to make sure that they were the real deal. And this was actually their idea because they trusted their product so much and I believe it wholeheartedly. So go to Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com and use code RUNNER15 to save 15% on your first order today. So this episode is with Sarah Ibbotson. Sarah is a remarkable runner. Even more than that, she has done a remarkable job collecting the stories of other runners who have had the same, basically, kind of the same storyline as she has, uh, which is basically someone who had worked their tail off to try to qualify for the Olympic trials and just came up a hair short, right? The 245.01 series, as she calls it. She's been doing it for a while now. She's out on Instagram. She's pretty giving these updates, but there are also longer blog posts that you can find. Her Instagram is runningbcba, and also that's her website as well as runningbcba.blogspot.com. I love this series, and I was, you know, basically someone presented it to me. They sent me a note and said, hey, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but this is getting being put out in the world. I think you would like it, and shout out to, actually, it was a couple of people who sent me that because Man, I am such a fan of this. This is really going to be the last podcast we do that's related to the Olympic trials. And I just love it because not only is it just captivating seeing people going for their dreams and things that they love, but in addition to that, these stories aren't just, hey, like I didn't reach my goal um, which can be kind of a downer sometimes, but these people are also filled with hope for what they can do in the future. So I love this series. I love what Sarah was able to do, and I loved following her journey as well. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sarah Ibbotson. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the show. Well, hi, Matt. Thank you for having me today. It's my pleasure. So it's Thursday, the 27th. We're two days away from the Olympic trials in the marathon. How are you feeling? I, I'm doing fine. I'm excited to, to watch. I'm excited for everybody I know who's competing. And, you know, it's a great time to be a, a female marathoner in the U.S. That's for sure. And I say that as someone who's consumed a lot of the content that you've put out, also witnessed your own running and racing. And you've been kind of on the other side of this uh, of this topic for a while in terms of not just the people who are going, but you've been so active in chronicling a lot of folks who will not be running this weekend. So is there is there a part of you that views it through that lens as well? Yeah, I mean, there is. Obviously, my, my big goal was to be there myself. And along the way, I met many, many women who who shared that goal. So, I mean, honestly, each time I was I was in a pack where we were trying to work together to get the standard. I just wanted every woman in that pack to get it. You know, I always thought this would be the perfect day if if I run a 
244.59 and all these women beat me. So <laughs> um, it would be great to be there. But um, at the same time, there's, there's certainly um, more important things in life. And I've certainly put all that in, into perspective. Wait, there's more important things in life than qualifying for the Olympic trials? Are you sure? Are you sure about this? Am I, I don't know. Am I allowed to say that on a, on a running <laughs> podcast? I don't know. <laughs> well, you, you're someone who came very, very close, um, you know, at, at various marathons, and you've been a very good runner for a long time. And I'll tell you what, obviously, 2019 was a great year for you from a running perspective. While you may not have reached that ultimate goal that you had, you set five different, uh, I'm sorry, three different PRs in 2019 alone. So when did becoming an Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon in 2020 become a goal for you? Um, I guess it was the end, towards the end of 2016. Um, at that time, I always tell people it's really a slippery slope because at that time I, I had said, you know, if I can break three hours in the marathon, I'm going to be happy forever. You know, I'm sure that that's probably my limit. And, uh, in October 2016 was the first time I broke three hours um, and I had ran a 258 high. Um, so I had already, you know, run a minute faster than I thought I ever could because I thought, you know, the 259, 259, that's my max. Um, and I ran that, but I also, I ran a pretty small marathon. So I'd, I'd run about 20 miles of the race completely by myself. So I said, well, I could definitely run faster than that if I'm not time trialing the whole thing because I always run better with other people. Um, then four weeks later, I ran another small marathon. Um, I wasn't really planning to try for another sub three so soon, but my coach said, you know, you can do it. Why not? Um, so I did and, uh, tried for it and I succeeded. Um, I ran 259 in that one, but I actually took a wrong turn. So I ran about a quarter mile or a third of a mile long, like going off the course and then coming back to the course. Um, so then I said, well, you know, if I hadn't taken the wrong turn, I would have run a lot faster. Now I've got to do another one. And it just kept uh, snowballing from there. Uh, then I uh, I ran my next one in 249. And even though it was kind of a, a cheater marathon, I'd say, because uh, it was Phoenix and it has about 900 feet of net drop. Um, at that point, it, I really became confident that I was going to go for it. So that was in in early 2017. Okay. Now back then was the 245 number this well-known thing for a lot of, you know, sub elite runners. I know now it's just synonymous. You just talk to someone about, Hey, 245. And then, you know, if you're in the running community, you know, that's all you need to say. And that time itself tells a story that, you know, when we're talking, you know, roughly three years ago, was that that same sort of, you know, name slash number recognition? I don't think it was nearly as widely known. Um, I knew from the 2016 trials, um, but they actually hadn't announced it yet, um, what the standard was going to be for, for 2020. So at that time, I was hopeful that they weren't going to make it any faster. I was hopeful that it would stay 245. But I don't think we knew for sure until, I, I believe it was that summer of, of 2017, because then the window opened in, in the fall of 2017. Now, how did you start training? And you know, at that point, moving forward, did it was it just a continuation of what you'd been doing previously with your coach, or was this much more of an investment in the marathon for the long term? It it was both. Um, 
you know, I had, I started working with a coach for the first time as an adult in in 2015 at the end of the year when I was decided I wanted to break three. And I, you know, as things progressed, I told him about my goal to, to get the OTQ. And we, we continued doing a lot of similar things, but really worked on increasing my mileage at that point. I, I was a pretty low mileage runner, uh, relatively, you know, I, I broke three hours running, um, around most of my weeks were in the fifties. I think I peaked around 60. Um, and so when, when we talked about it, one of the things my coach at that time said was, you know, we need to get your mileage up, which honestly I was a little bit afraid of, but I knew that it was something that I needed to do. Um, I wasn't afraid because I didn't want to do it. I was afraid I would get injured, but it turned out that we, we took it gradual and, I've actually been injured a lot less running high mileage. So it's, it's been an interesting journey. So why were you at the 50 to 60 mile range at that point in your career? Was that a conscious decision or was it, were there other factors at play? Yeah. Well, <laughs> to rewind a lot, I, I ran in college and uh, I got injured in college a lot. In fact, I really didn't run much in college. I mainly just aqua jogged. <laughs> so I um, left college and I quit running early because of the injuries because I was very concerned that I, I wouldn't be able to continue running for my whole life. And that was more important than my college career in running. So I stopped running for the team. I was just running every other day for fun. Um, and I just had it in my head that I can't run more than 30 or 40 miles a week or I'll get hurt. And so I, I didn't run that much uh, volume. Now, in hindsight, I see the reason I got hurt in college wasn't because of the volume. It was because of the abrupt increase. I was a very low mileage runner in high school. Um, I mean, I ran 15 miles a week, probably. Most days I was running three or four miles. And, you know, so 20 miles was my peak week in high school. (laughs) So going from that to running 40 miles a week in college, it was just too abrupt a transition. So it wasn't that my body can't handle running more than that. It's just that my body couldn't handle um, doubling my mileage with no in between. So anyway, that was that was why I was kind of hanging out at a lower mileage. I just thought I couldn't do more than that and stay healthy. So you mentioned that you are actually more healthy now than you were back then when you were running 50 to 60 miles a week. So did you have any lingering issues that were constantly bothering you or were they more what they call one-off injuries that had really affected you from time to time? Yeah, really all the injuries I've had um, in the past. And then as I've been on this journey, they've been just more of a one and done thing, I guess, you know, it healed and then it's fine. Um, and I, I haven't been completely injury free throughout this this journey, but um, I can say the only time I've gotten injured has been when I've when I've run when I was sick. So I've I've learned I've learned on that. Um, but overall, you know, I'm I don't have niggles. I just feel better. I feel stronger. So I've kind of learned that the high mileage agrees with me. Okay, so a year ago, around this time, when you're planning your 2019 race schedule and trying to you know, get that 245 goal or two under 245, I should say, um, kind of you know, had that kind of implanted in your mind. Or right, how am I going to get this? What were 
for you the, the key factors to getting there in the kind of race calendar that you had kind of set out that you wanted to do moving forward? Mostly, I just took one training cycle at a time. Um, so the two the two marathons I really uh, ended up going for it at in 2019 were Grandma's and Indy Monumental. So in, in leading up to Grandma's, I was just focused on that schedule only. I didn't have anything planned beyond it. And really just focused, you know, the the day-to-day training. I just would do what was scheduled. Um really tried to to focus on on living the the best lifestyle to support my training so that that also means making sure I was sleeping enough, making sure I was eating enough and and getting enough nutrient dense foods, but I mainly just just took it day by day and um trusted the process. Um, I really, really love the day-to-day process. I mean, that's my favorite part. Um, so it was, uh, you know, although I am a, I'm a planner and I want to look ahead, um, at the same time, I I just really enjoy running every day or running twice a day. And so I just trusted, trusted my coach was going to get me the best chance of, of getting there and tried to give myself the best chance. So as the race came up on your schedule and you're, you're really, you know, you start your taper and you're really looking forward to race day. What was it like for you in terms of expectations for grandmas once it was at your doorstep? Honestly, for grandmas, I thought it was going to be kind of a long shot. Um, I know it doesn't sound like it's much difference, but it's run the 245. You need to average about 617 pace or under for your, for each mile. And I really felt like I was ready to run about 620 pace, but probably not quite ready for the 617. Um, but, you know, nobody goes and, and tries to run 246. So <laughs> I thought, well, that's close enough. I, I'm just going to go for it anyway. And um, I was right. I was probably in shape to run about 620 pace. So um, I ended up, you know, not not getting the qualifying time there, but uh, I wasn't. I don't really get nervous or I just know that I'm going to go out there and do my best and whatever that is, it is, um, you know, by getting worked up about it, I'm not going to run any faster and I might even run slower. So I was just ready to go and and see what I could do on that day. So after grandma's, what was the key that you and your coach decided that you needed to work on to get just to be more, more fit and more race ready for monumental? I think the big piece I um I had changed coaches um and just started working with a different coach in uh April 2019. Um prior to that I I had kind of self-coached for about 6 months. And so when I started working with with a new coach, we just had a a fairly short time together before grandma's, but I did respond well to the training. So we were hoping just to get some more work in on the different systems, get some different workouts in, and continue to build consistent mileage. So just consistency being the main key, in terms of your abilities as a runner, are you one of those people who really can, you know, kind of dominate the track workout and then maybe struggle with the tempos and threshold runs, or maybe it's the the opposite, or you feel like you're fairly well-wound? 
fairly well-rounded in that respect. Oh, I'm absolutely the opposite of the first thing you said. <laughs> I uh, am not very good on the track, but I am very good at the tempos and the long runs. Um, I uh, I would say I'm I'm pretty weak on the track, and and we have improved that some. But um, anytime I go below threshold, it's uh, it's not easy, <laughs> even if it's just for a short time. So for you, it's a matter of just, can you get faster because you already kind of have that sustained aerobic base and ability to go for a long time? Yeah, speed is, is absolutely my, my weakness. All right. So you're, so you're preparing for Monumental. You obviously are a high-level runner. You've come close a couple times. A lot of people were planning on running Indy. It was kind of like this year's CIM in a way because of its time away from the trials, right? In terms of people who wanted to qualify for the trials, but also wanted to be in peak fitness for the trials, a lot of folks decided on Monumental this year. So what was the lead up for you as being someone who was, you know, firmly entrenched in that group and, you know, joining this large cohort of folks, and in your case, women who were in the same boat as you and really trying to maximize that day? Well, I tried to learn as much as I could about the race and just all the logistics beforehand. Um, and I did learn that they were going to have a 245 pacer, which I think is really cool when races offer that because it's not very common. And however, my experience with pacers has usually been that they go out a little hot. And for some people that works, that works fine. But for me, I'm going to do best with uh, an even race or, or even a slightly negative split or probably best with a, with a negative split. So I was a little nervous about the pacer situation. Um, and I knew several other women who, who kind of had the same thoughts on, on the best racing strategy for them. And that was to have a more conservative start like me. So I ended up connecting with, with several women um, and we kind of had a 245 conservative start group plan. So it was a nice chance to to connect with some different women and and try to work together and, and play on our strengths as opposed to going out, you know, possibly at 610 pace. And then um, that just is not a strategy that would, would work for me. So were you able to execute the plan? We were pretty well. Yeah, we um, we had a group probably about six of us. I'll have to look at the pictures um, initially. And, and we could see the, the 245 pace group ahead of us, um, but we were hanging back off of them. Um, I, our first mile, I believe, was about 630. Um, so we went out a little slow just with the, the crowds and stuff, but I was fine with that. And then we settled into just right around um, staying between 615 and 620. Um, came through the half, um, in a one, let's see, one twenty two something, but it was right around where we wanted to be. And the whole time we could see the, the main group ahead of us. And it, it was much larger. Uh, they came through the half in a, around one twenty one and a half, I think. Um, and again, for some people that was a great strategy, but it's just, it's just not for me. I'm, I don't have any room for error, so I can't, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was so close to being on the line and obviously I didn't make it, but I knew that if I was going to make it, 
it, you know, I didn't have room in there to run any miles that were just a little too fast. So at what point did things start to maybe go south for you in that race? Well, in this situation, I actually didn't look at my watch the entire race. Um, I just tend to do better when I run by feel. I had a great group with me. And uh, so I, I wasn't quite sure where I was at. They do have course clocks at Indy, which was really nice. I believe they had one every mile. And I didn't always see them. But I saw the ones at the important checkpoints. Like I knew where I was at the half. I knew where I was at mile 20. And um, so at mile 20, I knew I was I was pretty much right on track. and. And I felt okay. You know, I thought, oh, I think that I think I can do this. I feel way better than I felt at grandma's. Um, because at the grandma's at mile 20, things were already starting to go south. Um looking at my splits in retrospect, um, it was really the last three miles that got me. So I'd say around twenty-three was was when my splits really um I didn't totally bonk. I mean I ran about 640, 6.45. Um, but when you've got when you need to run 615 to make it, that you know, that was my minute that uh I missed it by. So in the race, we were going against a pretty a pretty bad headwind from about 13 and a half to the end. And from 13 and a half to 18 or so, we were weaving around more and it it just wasn't that big of a deal, but towards the very end, we had some really long stretches into it and that just got me. So when going to that wind, I knew the things weren't, weren't looking so good. <laughs> and then when did you become aware of you know, either because of a course clock or you finally did look down at your watch? When did you become aware um, of where you might finish uh, while you were still kind of getting you know, close to the finish line? Really, mile um, 24, 25, those clocks uh, is when I, I really started thinking, oh, gosh, I, I don't think I'm going to make it. But at the same time, you know, anything can happen. So so I didn't give up. You know, I knew at mile um, 24, I forget exactly what I needed, but I thought, okay, you know, two miles at six-minute pace. Just do these last two at six-minute pace. And, um then at mile 25, you're thinking, well, maybe I can pull off a 545 last mile. Why not try? So, so I didn't really um, let myself give up on, on reaching for it until we passed the mile 26 clock. And at that point, the mile 26 clock, it was right where I wanted to be finishing. You know, it was a, a, a 244, a 40 or something like that. And uh, maybe even a little higher than that. It was a 244. And so that's when I knew, you know, I, I wasn't going to run those last point two in 10 seconds or whatnot. So. So when you were really bucking down in those, you know, mile 24, mile 25, what was that feeling like in your legs that was kind of holding you back? I just felt like I was out of gas. I think just, just fighting that wind and, you know, I was fishing with all I had, but I just, just didn't have quite enough to go any faster. Um, and usually I'm really good at negative splitting and, and fast finishing and workouts. So it, I think that, that pushing, um, 
you know, gets that wind and maintaining pace a little earlier on just took more out of me than it would have if there'd been no wind. Do you feel, and I know this is a question that a lot of runners think about after the fact, even for races that go perfectly well, is, you know, do you feel like you put in 100% of what you had on that day into that race? Or do you look back with any regrets at certain points? No, I gave 100% of what I had. Um, you know, I, I wish that I'd had more, but, um, I gave it all and I could really tell that because even, you know, normally our, our minds limit us more than our body does. And so that's why normally you get to the end of a race and you, you can do that finishing sprint. So it's not suddenly that you've got more energy. It's that your mind is telling you, okay, you know, now I've only got to run from here to here. I can let it all out. Um, but my, uh, my finishing sprint, you know, on my Garmin was like 640. So I wasn't able to pick it up at all, even for that. So that really showed me, you know, I, I went all in. I was, <laughs> I, I gave all I had and it just wasn't quite enough. So what were you thinking and feeling post-race, both in the short term and maybe even a couple of days later? You know, initially I, I was mostly happy, you know, I, I'd given, everything I had, I didn't think that I had done anything wrong. Um, you know, I, I didn't pace poorly or, or make any nutrition mistakes. Um, so I, I felt that I really did my best and, and it was a PR, uh, on a course that was, was probably a little slower than where I ran my previous PR, which was at CIM. And so for the most part, I, I was happy. Obviously, I was disappointed. I didn't get the time. It was hard to come in and then, um, you know, see see all the people who had gotten it. And then I went back to the elite area and, you know, talked to a lot of other people there who'd gotten it. So sometimes when you miss it, it's really easy to feel like you're the only one who missed it and everybody else got it. Um, but for the most part, initially, I was, I was still happy. And I still felt that, um, you know, I could go to CIM and do it. Uh, a few days later, it I got a little more upset about it, and I'm generally not a very emotional person, but uh, I I did feel a little emotional in the the days coming off of it, and I think part of that just because I I wasn't training, and you know I need my I need my running, I need my feel good endorphins, so <laughs> I you know just just kind of got that feeling of of not being good enough and and disappointment that you know I tried again and I didn't make it again. And what was your decision tree at that point regarding what you wanted to do, um, how you were going to do it, and you know what sort of chances you were willing to take to try to get that qualifying standard? Well, I knew I would try again. That was a definitive. And it was – I was actually entered in both CIM and Houston, and it's kind of a long story about – how that happened, but I, but I had elite entries into both of those races. So I knew, you know, one of those I'm, I'm going to try again. And in talking, talking with my coach and just looking at my history, we decided that CIM would be the the best bet for me. I've typically actually done really well when I ran marathons about four weeks apart, you know, my first and second sub threes were four weeks apart. And I just, I tend to recover pretty well. I found if I run them a little farther apart, um, you know, eight weeks or whatnot, that they don't go quite as well because I don't have time for a whole new build, but I also 
am going a little too long that I can't maintain the peak like I could for four weeks, if that makes sense. So we talked a little bit and, and also CIM is just it's a fast course. It's, you know, it's the OTQ factory. Everybody goes there to, <laughs> to get the time. So I was targeting CIM until just a couple, a few days before the race. Um, my, my brother was killed in a car accident. And so obviously I didn't go, you know, that, changed everything at that point. And then obviously you know, that happens, you know, to, to your family, which is tragic. Uh, so certainly what, what about, again, I don't want to dive too deep into your, your personal life here, but, but what about, you know, that, that experience and kind of dealing with that experience, you know, especially with all your focus that you had on that race, that you wanted to then cycle back up again and try to run Houston after, after all that had you know transpired in November and December for you and your family. Right. Well, I wasn't going to, I, you know, when that happened, um, it just really changed my focus of course. And it was a, it was a rough time. And one way that I really cope is, is through running. So the day that that I was going to run CIM, um, I ended up running 24 miles uh, around my parents' house. Or not around their house, but <laughs> around the area they live in. And um, because my one of my brother's favorite psalms was Psalms 24. So I wanted to, to do that for him. And then, you know, really my training schedule had just totally gone out the window. I wasn't obviously wasn't following my taper schedule. I wasn't following my recovery schedule. I was just doing what I wanted. And, uh, that ended up, I ended up running a hundred mile week, uh, because like I said, I just, I used running to cope and I was running a lot. I was, uh, also meeting up with, with a friend who lives near where my parents do. They're in a different state. So I was, I was out of state throughout this time and um meeting up with my my friend who ran was was really helpful because everybody else I was around at that time was you know they were in my family, and so we were just all in it, and everybody was was struggling, so I ended up just running a lot. I kind of just told my coach that you know I, I'm done well, maybe we'll try again in twenty twenty four and I had told my family the same thing, but my my husband and my dad both really encouraged me to to consider going to Houston. You know, they they'd been with me at Indy. They you know been out there in the wind, and they kept saying, "Oh, we know you would have got it. We know you're fit. You were ready to get it at CIM." And I I just didn't think I was up for it mentally to to go to Houston, but. I told my coach just to go ahead and train me like I was going. And I said, you know, I'll run a lot anyway. And obviously I need someone to rein me in because I just did this crazy hundred mile week that, you know, the first part of the week was a taper. So I uh, probably need you to write me a schedule. Or I'm going to get hurt anyway. So we did that. And it wasn't until about two weeks before Houston, I did a long run workout and I got home and I just looked at my husband and I said, you know, it's kind of crazy if I just did that workout and I don't run Houston, isn't it? And he said, yeah, yeah, you should just do it. Um, 
So that's that's how I ended up in Houston. Yeah, I can see how you'd be going back and forth there because there's there's so much to there's so much on your plate there, and you're trying to figure out okay what what's best to do and so on and so forth. And were you worried at all just about like if I give this another try, considering everything that's been going on in my life, like you know, that, that, were you worried about like if you didn't get the time again, that the disappointment would just be too much, or were you able to go into it, you know, kind of clear headed in a way that there isn't necessarily negativity attached? No, you know, kind of like good, bad, or neutral. You know, for for Houston, I wasn't worried about it at all because honestly, by then the qualifying had just had lost so much significance. You know, it, it was a goal, and I still wanted to do it, but everything had just come into perspective. Uh, well, you know, if I get it, great. If I don't, I don't. Um, whereas before, I, I went through everything with, um, December and, and my family and whatnot. Um, at that point I was scared uh, if I tried again and, and didn't make it, I'd be really upset, but, but things just kind of got in perspective and, and it seemed really trivial to be too worried about that. Yeah, I can imagine. So on race day, how, how, first of all, how did you approach the race just you know, from a strategy standpoint and how did it end up working out for you? Well, I pretty much only went to Houston to try for the time. So there was, uh, it was either get it or blow up trying. And uh, the the day before the race, actually two days before the race, I had woke up with a sore throat. Then the day before the race, I started wheezing and we were already in Houston. So honestly, if, if I'd gotten sick a few days earlier, I just wouldn't have gone to the race. Um, cause I tend to get bronchitis almost every year and, and I'll get it pretty bad cause I have a history of asthma. So I kind of knew I was, you know, going to be very sick, but we were already in Houston and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm just on the starting end of it. Maybe I'll be okay. So my plan was just to run with the 245 group, uh, as long as I could. And because I was sick, I, I thought, you know, if, if I can't maintain it, I don't need another 249. I don't need another marathon finish. I'll just drop out and then, you know, I can avoid getting more sick. So how that ended up working is I ran, I ran with the group, you know, on pace where I met a lot of amazing women, which I'll have to talk about later, but, um, ran with them for uh, between 10 and 11 miles and then, and fell off. Um, I was just super weak from, from being sick. And my buildup obviously wasn't ideal with targeting a different race and then targeting this race and whatnot. So when I fell off, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll go to the half, I'll run to the half marathon. So my family knows that I'm off pace and they know that I'm, I'm going to drop. Cause I had told my husband and dad that ahead of time, but then I got to the half and I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to the next medical station so I can get back there. And then I, saw a friend who had also fallen off the OTQ pack. And I thought, well, I'll catch up with Ashley and run with her for a while. And this whole time, you know, I'm just jogging. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm really racing anymore. And caught up with Ashley. I ran, ran with her till almost 20. And by that point, I thought, well, I'm almost to 20. I'll just finish this thing. <laughs> so I did. I ended up finishing. And I ended up getting extremely, extremely sick afterwards. So not sure if it was the best idea, but at the same time, um, 
you know, I, I just, it's harder to, to quit than you would think. I, I didn't realize how that would pan out, but I, I did run a 258. So I still, still snuck it under three and that was a little redemption. Yeah. You kind of went full circle there, right? Cause the, the first time that you thought, all right, maybe I should try to qualify for the Olympic trials. You'd also run a 258. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the series that you did, 245.01. I, I love this series. I talked about it with Allie Feller on a podcast that actually was released today, uh, Ramblings on the Run, which was on her feed, um, that we talked about things that we are really loving right now. And for me, this series that you've been doing in conjunction with other you know sub-elite women runners is just fantastic. And I couldn't wait to bring it up in that podcast and in this one as well. First of all, Let's just introduce it. You, you know, it's kind of like a, a question and answer blog post format where you're talking to or interviewing or, you know, basically having someone write about their experience of not quite getting the Olympic trial standard in a similar fashion as you in terms of not necessarily the same story, but, you know, kind of what we're doing right now, you know, talking about your journey and, and what happened. First of all, when did it come up to you? Did, when did it come into your mind? to start a series like this and how did you start executing once you kind of had solidified that it was something you wanted to pursue? Well, like I said earlier, along the way, I have just met so many amazing women on this journey and some women would, would go on to qualify and we would all celebrate with them. And then other women would, um, would miss it. And, you know, we would almost all kind of mourn with them or, or understand their disappointment. And, and, you know, I think that just everything that happened to me put everything into perspective a little bit more. And then going into Houston and, and afterwards, um, you know, there was just so many women that were super gritty and amazing in that that last minute OTQ group there. And I thought, you know, there's all these stories that that are so inspirational and so motivating that aren't getting shared because they don't have happy endings. Yeah, you you read a lot of articles where you know women they overcame this and they tried four times and then they they made the trials and and those are great stories too, but there was all these women who who didn't have that happy ending who were kind of um, you know getting getting lost in the shuffle. Um, so I thought you know I've I've loved following these people. I love when I get to learn more about them. I think that I think that the world would like them too. Um, and of course, I just have this little, um, you know, blogger format, <laughs> kind of antiquated, not fancy blog. But I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to some of these women I know, and I'm going to start sharing their stories. So I, I did it both on my blog, and I'd put little blurbs on Instagram, each one that I posted to kind of get a, a wider audience there. But, um, you know, I, I knew little tidbits about several of the women that I've. I've posted about, but reading their whole stories, you know, have just been amazing. These, these women are doing amazing things. Uh, there's so many who, who came so close so many times and they just kept fighting. And then, you know, when you think about it, at a two forty five thirty marathon, you know, it, it's really pretty much the same as a two forty four fifty nine marathon. It just, it's the same performance. It just doesn't get you to the, to the party in Atlanta. And I hated seeing all these amazing women feel such disappointment over such fast marathons. But on the flip side, I totally understood it because I was there too. Um, I walked away from 
from several marathon PRs disappointed because they weren't fast enough. Through that whole process, what did you learn about yourself and your relationship to running that maybe you didn't quite know in those moments where you weren't able to kind of bask in the glory of, you know, a new personal best? It's really been a great reminder about the bigger picture. You know, the running community is awesome. Every day we're able to run and to train is really a blessing. And again, you know, some th- sometimes things line up differently. Um, I feel like all of those women, you know, that I profiled, any one of them, if things had gone a little bit differently, they would have made it. Um, on the flip side, there's a lot of women who made it if things hadn't gone quite as well they wouldn't have. Um, I wish everybody could be there and um, have their dream realized. But of course, there has to be a line in the sand on on this is the time. So of the of the women you chronicled, and all of them have such great stories. In fact, several of them have been on this podcast, in fact, uh, either on the, on the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast feed or the Rambling Runner feed. Of the ones that you chronicled on your blog and on Instagram, was there one that had a particular impact on you? Oh, I've got to say, there is no way I can pick. (laughs) (laughs) There is just so many amazing stories. There's, you know, there's women who, who tried for it multiple times in the last couple of months. There's, you know, women working around pregnancy and, and coming back from having babies there's there's actually three women I've featured who's had physicians tell them that they wouldn't be able to run again or maybe wouldn't even be able to walk quite regularly um, who went on to come super close. So, and they're, I mean, almost all of these women are, you know, they're working full time or they, they have several children and they have a lot going on outside of running as well. So they're just, they're all really cool, unique individual people. And I really felt like, you know, the world was missing out with not having their stories out there. Absolutely. Now, what's it like for you now that the trials are here and basically the board is about to be wiped clean for all the runners in terms of the, you know, qualifying standards for the next time around? Is this something that you're looking at again? And under what guise and lens are you looking at this next cycle considering what you've done the previous three to four years. Right. You know, I, I do hope that I'll have a chance at the, the 2024 trials. And I think most of the women that I, I featured said the same thing, you know, they're looking forward to 2024 and, you know, we'll have to see what the qualifying standard is at that time. And, and I'll have to see how I feel, but I mean, I know for sure that as long as I'm healthy, I will be running marathons and I'll be giving it my all. So I think the only thing the standard really changes is is maybe which marathons I'll run. All right. Well, I advise anyone who's listening to this to go read these posts because they're all just phenomenal. Um, and shoot, your story is right up there with, with any of them. And obviously we don't, you know, when tragedy strikes anybody, it's, it's, it's horrible. But I think seeing what you've done in the face of that, um, you know, is, is important as well. So where can people go to, to read these posts? Um, my blog, it's, it's running bcba.blogspot.com. So they are all, I have a link on the, the homepage there that they can click and, and go straight to a page that lists all the people who've been profiled. And then you can click on the links to, or click on their names to, to go straight to their profile. 
All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show and keep up the great work. Well, thank you. I'm a big fan of the show, so I appreciate it. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun, man. Just not only learning more about her, but all of the stories that she's illuminating through her work has just been absolutely fascinating. So go check them out, Running BCBA on Instagram and runningbcba.blogspot.com. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Prevenex, Athletic Greens, and Four Sigmatic for me. These are the things that help me stay healthy. No, I'm not saying that in light of the coronavirus or anything like that. Just general overall health from a day-to-day basis. I love this stuff. It means a lot to me, and it means a lot to me that they are willing to sponsor this podcast and be a part of this community. So go check them out today. Believe me, you will not regret it. Thank you so much for listening, for rating and reviewing the show. And even more so, thank you so much for sharing the podcast with your friends and family. It really means so much to me. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.